Men he's not stopping out. Hold y'all. Y'all, let's clean that up right now. This is far enough north that we all have to explain. Y'all means you all. That's the ice you're getting there. Back down south, I don't have to explain that. I am glad to be back out here again. We have really looked forward to this. We really have. This has been a lot of... We were out here... I've been finished two years ago up at Sheridan. And my wife says, no, and she's always right. She's a Delanoff. Right? She said it last year, and she is right. And I've looked forward to coming back so very much. This is one of the most beautiful places on earth, y'all. It really is. And you guys are some of the most beautiful people in the world. And I start this thing off pretty well the same way. I don't mean to do this. I really don't. But I start off pretty well the same thing. I'm talking about what a good-looking group of people you are. And those of you that have not had the pleasure of getting up behind one of these things at a group like this, I'd give anything on earth that you could. Because I speak at a lot of things sometimes that have nothing to do with alcohol and numbers. And those people out there, the minute you start, are judgmental, man. They're coming back on you. They're trying to criticize you. Just have a look. And you get up here, and I wish all you people could see this, the love that's coming back. You can't screw up. There ain't no way to screw up. I wish particularly, I wouldn't dare embarrass a newcomer. I wouldn't do it at all. But I wish particularly of people in here with less than 30 days to come up and see what's happening. To see that the love, that meant there is no failure in this world when you've got this kind of love. And we'll talk a little bit about that love a little bit later on. But let me to begin with start what I always start off with. Let me start here. Now, if some people say I talk fast. I don't talk fast. You just been listening to this turkey. He talks slow. I'll talk fast and all. Let me start off just a minute talking to the new people. Because as I understand it, that's the reason I'm not here in Wyoming, isn't it? We have a fifth tradition where a lot of places in the United States, we read our traditions. And the tradition says something to the effect that the only reason we're here is for the alcoholic who still suffers. Now, that's not to say that an old-timer can't suffer, an old-timer can suffer. But I want to think tonight, let's compare it to the new person and the new person only. Because when I got the Alcoholics Anonymous, y'all, y'all, when I got the Alcoholics Anonymous, there are some things I knew about me. Come on, just the new people, you old-timers can get you some coffee, I don't give a damn. I knew two things about me specifically. One thing I knew was that I was, and you've heard other speakers say the same thing, I was the most unique person on God's earth, right? And you've heard, of God, I know one guy in California, Jerry and I talked about last night, talked about this all the time. I could tell I was different from you, and I could tell it by looking at you, right? Because if you ever walked down the streets of Casper, Wyoming, and looked and saw somebody that looked exactly like you felt, no way. And I never realized, this is what that other character says, I never realized that you spent your 40-odd years building up these facades to make me think that you felt like you looked. Okay? And the other thing I knew when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, y'all, and I knew this without a question of a doubt, I knew that I was not an alcoholic. I'm just talking to the brand new people. Because I knew what an alcoholic was. I knew that an alcoholic was a person that had a problem with alcohol. I'd heard it all my life. And I still hear it. If you've got a problem with alcohol, you need to be an alcoholic tonight. Baloney. If you've got a problem with alcohol, hell, quit drinking. And life gets better. However, I knew I wasn't an alcoholic because I had problems that had nothing whatsoever to do with drinking alcohol. And here's the kicker, y'all. Those problems were far, far, far more intense when I was not drinking alcohol. Therefore, alcohol was not my problem. Alcohol was a solution to my problem. And the insidiousness of what's wrong with Rod Costin tonight is, by God, it'll work again tonight until it kills me. Therefore, I wasn't an alcoholic, was I? And here's the deal on it, y'all. It wasn't the big things. Okay? Hell, the big things made the newspaper. I didn't mind talking to y'all about the big things. You know? The DWIs in that newspaper. The little things. Like maybe a couple of weeks ago, I screamed at my daughter. I couldn't talk to you guys about that. Hell, 
I was man, and I knew this. I was man enough in a couple of days, a week at the most, I was man enough I'd ride the boat fast. But until I did, nothing seemed to quiet it down as much as a couple of drinks of scotch whiskey. Therefore, alcohol wasn't my problem. It was a solution to my problem. If you're sitting here tonight, and you're brand new, and you are, there's five or six of you out there, and you know damn good well you're not an alcoholic. You're here because the judge sent you. You're here to keep a job. You're here because... Oh, to keep a wife or something like that, and you know damn well you're not an alcoholic because alcohol's not your problem, it's solution to your problem. Welcome aboard. <laughs> Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's one more thing I knew, and I knew it beyond the question of a doubt. I'm a fun-loving guy, you guys. We're not going to sit up here long faced tonight. If y'all are expecting that, bye. I knew I hadn't had any, any fun, any real fun in a long, long time. Okay. I got something I'm going to tell you. I have had more fun. <laughs> More complete, absolute, total, perfect fun since I got off that little airplane out here at your airport yesterday and the stewardess had on a neck a necklace with a gold ring with a triangle in it. Can you believe that? Welcome to Wyoming, it said Rodney Dale. Man, you arrived. Since I got here, I've had more fun than I had all the years before finding alcoholics novels. And it hasn't got a list of this, you guys. It hasn't got one damn thing to do with anything. Except today it hasn't got anything to do with anything that's going to happen tomorrow. And it hasn't got anything whatsoever to do with the fact that I haven't had a drink of alcohol today. It has happened. It has just happened since I became a step-working and reworking involved participating member of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. We come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was talking to a beautiful person today about this very thing. We come to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we hear some junk in here, don't we? We hear people say, you just keep coming back. <clears throat> don't worry about the steps. Just read the big book and turn it over to God. And it will get better. God, I love that word, it. It will get better. Now, I want to tell you guys something. I believe this with all of my life. I bet there's not a city in the United States of America that's 5,000 people or more in population that doesn't have a cemetery that contains the body of at least one alcoholic that came to Alcoholics Anonymous and heard our cliches and our metaphors and our opinions and didn't hear any accurate Alcoholics Anonymous. These things that we told this guy, like, don't worry about the steps. You just keep coming back and turn it over to God. And he came around here for six months and heard these well-meaning people say this. And he walked away, and he walked directly to the cemetery saying, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work. And you know something? He's telling the truth. Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work. What it is is a set of principles, by God, that I work. Okay? It don't work. I want to tell you something else, y'all. I have had a fantastic day today. It's been a great day to be alive, a great day to be sober. I woke up this morning and knew exactly what I did last night. I know whose wife I slept with. And here's the kicker. It was my own. <laughs> And there's people now across down East Texas and Arkansas that say, man, that's the greatest, greatest sign of growth in my life. Right there. You know? I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be sober. There's no one's ever known me or had anything to do with me. It's not grateful I'm sober. And I'm grateful for something else. I'm grateful that for today at least, the craving, the compulsion, the desire, the obsession, the thought of taking a drink of alcohol has been gone from my life. Isn't that neat? Wouldn't it be hell if I had to sit around here and white knuckle, white knuckle this thing and hang on for dear life? But I'm going to tell you something, y'all. It is my opinion that that right there can turn into the greatest problem that I've ever had in my entire life. 
Now we're talking to the old timers for just a second, okay? That problem could become complacency. Joe, where are you sitting? Joe and I thought about a dear, dear friend of ours down there at Brownwood, Texas that's talked at these things for 36 years. And old John, John Carlson says this, and I'll use his last name, he doesn't care. He says the two biggest enemies of alcoholics anonymous are number one, complacency at the individual level. And the other one, and, and, and certainly I was talking about this earlier about some other kind of a deal, was personalities at the group level. Complacency, y'all, is the biggest problem out there. Complacency can ruin everything in my life. It can ruin my relationship with super wife. Anytime I think I've got that deal made, I can lose it. It can ruin my relationship with Paul. Anytime I think that relationship with Paul is made, it can and it has ruined my sobriety. And I don't want it to happen again. We'll talk a whole bunch about complacency. I'm here for a couple of reasons. One of them is this. What's his name here? Ask me to come up here. You know what's his name. Runt. Paul's quite a person, did he? We spent, we spent the night at his house last night. Here's his shirt. And at 4.52 this morning, next door, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, December the 7th of 1941, whenever it was, the warning that went off was not as loud as the warning that went off next door. Some kind of a damn burglar alarm. It's the second loudest noise I have ever heard in my life. The first loudest noise I ever heard in my life was this guy, 30 seconds later, screaming at the warning horn. And then coming back in the house telling me that the guy over there was insane. <laughs> He's insane. <laughs> somebody told me it came out of Paul's fifth step, I guess, but somebody told me a long time ago when Paul was running around in his old drinking days, he was riding down the road, and he stopped the car, and he went up to this woman's house, and he knocked on the door, just drunker than the seventh plateau of hell. He said, lady, I think, I think I've run over this cat. She said, my God, man, what does it look like? He says, well, it's about that high and about that long. She says, no, what did it look like just before you hit it? He says, oh, ah! <laughs> That's it. <laughs> But the, the other reason I'm here, y'all, is simply this, and it's very serious. This morning when I got up, and for quite some time now, the first thing that I've done is I made a little deal, a little promise to my higher power. And in that promise, I says to my higher power, I says, very good friend God, with your help, I'll not take a drink of alcohol today, and I always add something to that. And I will do. By God, I'll do whatever it is that I'm asked to do in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to stay sober and help another alcoholic achieve and maintain their sobriety. So if you ask me to come to Wyoming and talk, I'm going to do it. If you ask me to shut up, we'll see what happens when midnight gets here. <coughs> my big book. seems like oh, the more I get up here, the more I talk about that big book. I hope I'm not in an area that that offends. I do not apologize about it. Because that big book has, in its first 164 pages, its preface 16 minutes forwards, the instructions on how to have handled every problem that has ever happened in my entire life. If I would have done it. Obviously, I didn't do those things, I wouldn't be here, right? But it's got, it tells me exactly what to do about everything from sex on, baby. It tells me precisely exactly what I'm supposed to do up here tonight, doesn't it? It says we are supposed to tell you what we used to be like, not what it used to be like. God, have you ever heard that? Down in Arkansas, in East Texas, what it used to be like, what happened, what it, hell, it ain't changed. You can go out there tonight at the liquor store and get it anytime you want it. The only thing that changed is me, Rod Costa. That it thing is just as ridiculous as us saying sometimes, the only thing you've got to do in alcoholic anonymous is just not take a drink one day at a time. 
If all you want baby cakes is one day of sobriety, you go downtown Casper, Wyoming, and slap a cop. <laughs> he will give you one day of pure sobriety. I'm going to tell you very little bit about what I used to be like. I'm going to get around and tell you a little bit about what happened. I'm going to tell you, man, I'm going to tell you what, what I'm like now. Because <laughs> I get excited about what I'm, I, I get up there. I was doing this one time out in California. A little gal got up who came up behind the podium when I got through. She said, Rod, boy, she said, everybody calls me boy. She said, you sound like a damn Baptist evangelist. Well, i got to watch that. Particularly Catholic Church. Sometimes I get up here and says, your church tail comes out. You get it. I get excited about what's going on in my life. Don't y'all? If you're not, we need to get very twisty, y'all. Okay? You see, I didn't set out when I was a kid to grow up and become an alcoholic. I set out when I was a kid to grow up and become an airline pilot. Kathy touched on that all the time. And for a number of years, and if you can't identify with this, you're in the wrong meeting. For a number of years, I made the career of flying airplanes and the career of drinking alcohol work very nicely, hand in hand together. Come on, y'all. I can do anything better with a couple of drinks in me. I don't give a damn what it is. All I could never have come around now because now I was long enough to find out I got me an allergy and I can't have a couple of drinks. But I can do anything better with a couple of drinks. That worked up to the fall of 1968 when it became apparent to those narrow-minded people that run that airline that drinking that alcohol was starting to cut in on my flying career. And it had become apparent to me a long time before that flying air stinking old airplanes cutting in on my drinking time. But simply due to the fact that flying airplanes paid a little bit more money than drinking the alcohol, I came to alcohol snobs. And I came to you people for that reason and that reason alone, just to save that job. I stayed around here then for ten months. It's what I look back on now and I call my ten months of sodriety. You know? But I did this, y'all. I said enough of the right words and I did enough of the right things. I was asked to go speak over at the Harbor Club in Fort Worth, Texas. And I went over there and I laid some alcoholics unanimous on those folks. I really did. I cured a lot of folks that night. Ain't no question about that. I mean, they could have disbanded alcoholics and in that part of Texas and it had all been well, you know? But when I got through talking, I got to thinking about this thing. And I got my old pickup truck and I started driving back into the mid-cities there between Dallas and Fort Worth where I live. And I got to thinking, I got to think, you know, I don't see why I couldn't combine all of your stories with my experiences and all of that vast wisdom that I had acquired in that ten months and go back to drinking normally. Now, the only irrational part about my thinking was this. I had never drank normal. Let me tell you a fast story about my normal drinking. Three or four years ago, Kathy and I decided to go speak up at a little convention up at Bull Shoals, Arkansas. We were living in Texas at the time. And we drove up there. And on the way up there, I drove across the Arkansas River, Paul. And as we drove across the Arkansas River, Dardanelle, Arkansas, I pointed off up on the left up there. And I said, honey, that's not magazine. Somebody later told me that's not correct. But I said, that's where on July the 4th of 1950, I had my first drink. Now, I was 17 years old. Now, don't bother figuring that out. That's going to make me 56 next month. Okay. <laughs> Some people, particularly the banquet, they just mess up the table because something fierce trying to. Yeah. In my hip pocket, think about this. There's probably some pilots in this group. In my hip pocket, I had a commercial pilot's license. I was 17 years old. If there are any pilots in this group, you know that's impossible. You've got to be 18 to have a commercial pilot's license. Boy, it happened, nowadays, you've got to have a birth certificate to prove that thing, right? Those days, all you had to have was a mother's signature. I had got my mother to sign this piece of paper. She said, well, Rodney Dale, it's not, it's not filled out on the other side. I said, mother, that's got to be typed in there. I had turned that over and I typed in one year wrong on that sucker, and I was literally eaten up with guilt about that. I was five foot two inches tall. I weighed 108 pounds. 
I had a little high squeaky voice, and I was terrified of women. That day, my boss took me up on the top of Mount, that mountain there that day, and he gave me all the slits beer I wanted to drink. And this ought to be a clue, y'all. I drank more slits beer on that mountain than anybody else on that mountain, yet I was the only one sober enough to drive off the mountain. That should have been a clue. When I got off that mountain, and this is the truth, I was six foot two. I weighed 180 pounds. I had a deep John Wayne voice, and I called up a little gal down in Albert, Arkansas, and asked her to marry me. And alcohol became the solution. The solution, not the problem. The solution to everything that went on in my life. Was I finished? No, I wasn't finished. I never heard of a bootlegger, but somebody said, that's where you get booze, man. So I called up a local bootlegger. I said, man, what you got? And the first thing he said was scotch. I've never heard of scotch, but it sounded sexy. I said, give me a bottle of that stuff. And I woke up the next morning under the, floor, under the uh, river bridge there, Arkansas River Bridge, Darnell, Arkansas. Was I an alcoholic? I don't think so. But 15 seconds later, when I sat both upright and I had a gash in my head, my shirt and breeches were about half torn off, I mean, across my little bitty-minded boy, <laughs> the feeling you got getting there is worth it. I believe at that second, I was an alcoholic. I believe this, y'all, this is serious. I believe this with all of my life. I believe that when the obsession, I love that word, we could talk an hour and a half on the word obsession, when the obsession of what alcohol is going to do for me comes in and it supersedes the reality of what alcohol is going to do to me, I believe at that moment I'm an alcoholic. Okay? That's what, y'all, I were to go back to drinking normally, too, when I left the meeting and speaking in Fort Worth that night. But you know what I did over in Fort Worth. I stopped at a liquor store on East Belknap. Over there. I got a quarter of scotch. I woke up the next morning in the Fort Worth City Jail. And I started filling in all of those squares that I had never filled in before. The marriage of mine, I was on my second marriage, you know. It hadn't been going too good. It started falling apart the seams due to that drink. And the job, you remember the job, the job I quit drinking for? I became absolutely terrified, man. Not flying airplanes, but off myself. I was going to show up at the airport, the airport someday, shaking too much to get on an airplane and go to work. I shook like hell. Or smelling too much to get, or, as undependable as my drinking has become, I was going to come out there someday absolutely knee-crawling, left-licking, drunk to fly a trip. Which, of course, you know, I finally did, right? The chief pilot met me at the door of operations that day. He had been watching me for a while anyhow. And I always like to say this right at this point. That was not paranoia. Paranoia is when you think they're watching you. <laughs> he had been watching. Okay. He turned me around. I remember it just like yesterday. He turned me around. He took me back to the parking lot. And on the way to the parking lot, he fired me. The firing sobered me up just enough to start my drive back over there where I lived. But on the way home, I did the only normal thing I knew how to do, right? Having just lost the job that I worshipped more than anything else on this earth for drinking alcohol, I got a quart of scotch to drink. Was my problem drinking? No. My problem was getting fired. My solution was drinking. And did it work? Did it get the job back? Hell no, but I want to tell you something. It got it off my mind for a few minutes. And when I hurt bad enough, all I want is a couple of seconds of peace of mind. And it worked beautifully. It just absolutely worked good for me. With that job with the home and the family, perhaps everybody else, you know, fair weather friends these wives are. So I moved back up to Arkansas where I'd been born. I had a little bit of money available to me. So I put in the building material business up there. And due to the fact, and only due to the fact, that I hired really two really good managers up there, that building material business took off, man, and it went great right off the bat. And simply due to the fact I hired those two good managers, it didn't cut my drinking time at all. And by April 11th of 1971, I was in sad, sad shape. I really was. 
I weighed 118 pounds, and I am not built for 118 pounds. I could no longer do anything without taking a drink of alcohol first. Y'all remember that? I take a couple of drinks of alcohol, and for a little while I could function. That day, however, I went back to my mother's house. She, she was raising me that second time, you know. I went back over there to brother's house that day, having had all of me I could take. Come on, y'all. Have you been there? Give me some identification. Because I had a long time ago. Okay. I mean, somebody took that today so beautifully. You know what I think it takes for an alcoholic? No, let me, let me rephrase that. For anybody, I don't give a damn what's wrong with them. For anybody to start getting well, I think it takes two things. One of them, it takes a bottom. That's various places. And the other one is to lose their last person that's taken care of. That day, I even lost myself. I went back there, I had all of me I could take, man. I'd already had all of y'all I wanted. But that day, I had fed up and run. And I called the number of my office in Hot Springs, and I'll not forget the guy that answered the telephone over there. He later became my sponsor. His name was Jim, I'll say Jim Groves. I'll leave his whole name. Jim later became a sponsor. And I'll not forget, I, I talked to Jim about four or five minutes. I must have been quite affected because Jim says, my God, Rod. He says, can you make it to Hot Springs? And I said, quite frankly, Jim, I don't know whether I make it to Hot Springs or not, but I'll try. And then Jim said something to me, y'all, that I won't ever get behind the pool without Costanomus without repeating, nor do I ever want to forget it, lest when I'm working with new people. Jim says, Rod, you try to make it to Hot Springs, boy, but if you can't make it, Jim says, I will come to you. The 12th step of the blessed program of Alcoholics Anonymous don't say these drunks are supposed to come try to take this program away from us. It says we're supposed to try to take the message to them, try to carry the message to them. The 12th step don't say, and God forgive me for saying this, I'm going to hurt some feelings, but heck will you? It don't say we pick up the drunk and drop them off at a treatment center either, does it? It says we carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Jim was ready to carry the message of this book. I love this thing y'all got up here passing on. Let's talk about it all night. It's the only program I know anything about, y'all. It's getting rid of Rod Carson and getting into y'all. Give me the opportunity, God, of seeing a new drunk. That's all I ever want. Give me the opportunity, God, of getting rid of myself. The whole program of Rod Carson, I offered another tangent, but let me go. <laughs> the whole program of Rod Carson, my understanding, is nothing but ego deflation. And ego deflation at death. And the only way I know how to do that is to get out of Rod Carson and to get into you. And if I can't find me a drunk, by God, I better find an old lady in more yard bar. I got to get out of Rod Costin because Rod Costin's my problem. Alcohol ain't. Okay? I got me old pickup truck and I made it over there. No big deal. I met Jim in the back of the store over in Hot Springs. He talked, you know, I don't even think that Jim was telling you what to do. If he did, he didn't do it. Little client store. And he talked alcohol synonymous to me all that afternoon. A precious person. That night he took me to another meeting. And after the meeting, you know what he did? He took me home with him. People are always saying, don't take a drunk into your house. What does the big book say? It says we occasionally do just that. It also says we occasionally give him some money. Come on, let's read the book sometime. These things that we get so many damn cliches about, let's straighten them up. He took me home with him. Didn't know me from Adam. I spent the night with him and his family there in Hot Springs. The next day he got me up. We went back to the store and he talked to our house. And I was all that day, that night to another meeting. And when I was meeting over with, I jumped in my old pickup truck, man. I headed back to my mama's house, about 20 miles over there, and I felt pretty good. For one thing, I'd had the first square meal I'd had in a long time. I felt pretty damn good. Next morning, I got up. I went over to the office. I got those two managers aside, and I says, boys, there are going to be some changes made around here. I says, for one thing, I'm not going to be around here much for a little while. Well, <clears throat> that wasn't <laughs> any great news to them. Yeah. I says, but i got to get myself somewhere. And the only way I know how to get myself sober is to get myself totally, completely, absolutely immersed 
in a program of Alcoholics Anonymous in Boadish. When I wasn't in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, I, I was with Jim or some other AA member. When I wasn't in with them, I was into that precious big book that I've learned to love so dearly. I was into my 12 and 12. And man, let me tell you something. Very quickly, my life started getting real good, real fast. And, and just as soon as it did, I started doing something that I would absolutely kill somebody I sponsored for doing today. I started redating my first wife. Now, we're not talking about the one that had just divorced me for alcoholism. We're talking about my first wife. Okay? She and I, two boys, live down in Texas still. And every other weekend, I'd go to Dallas and see her. And the alternating weekend, she'd come to Arkansas and see me. And very quickly, it looked to me like, we're going to be able to put something back together again, man. Now, it wasn't going to like it that first time. There's no question about that. I mean, that first time, you know, every good alcoholic down that part of the South down there has been married at least once time at 16. You know that. I've been 18, uh, 19, what was it, about 19, she was 18 when we got married to God. She'd been married, the mother, the sweetest, cutest, sexiest thing that ever lived. And I'd been some kind of a knight on a white horse and shining arm. It was not going to be that way this time, baby. She had a bank box full of stuff proven. I wasn't much here. But it did look to me like we were going to be able to put together a very caring, respecting, adult-type relationship. And as it did, I pulled her aside two months sober. I said, Darcy, I'd like to remarry you, but there's something you've got to understand. Two months old. I says, I'm an alcoholic. I said, I don't think it had anything to do with our marriage breaking up the first time. And guess what she said? She says, I don't think so either. Now, after a number of four steps, baby cakes, it had plenty to do with it breaking up the first time, too. But I said, I'm an alcoholic, but I'm sober. And my sobriety is the most important thing on earth to me. I'd like to remarry you, but you're going to have to come in second to my sobriety. Do you accept that? And you're not going to believe this, but she bought that thing hook, line, and sinker. Absolutely. She and the boys moved off up to Arkansas. We built us a beautiful home out of the lake there between this little town of Malvern and Hot Springs. Life could not have been better except for one thing, y'all. I still was not flying airplanes. Now, I occasionally get criticized for what I'm about to say, but that's your problem, not mine. thought it was a solo app, did you? <laughs> I dearly love flying airplanes. I love you people. I love alcoholics and others. I love Kathy, but I love flying our airplanes. Let me ask you something. What is the program of alcoholics and others about? Is it about coming to a meeting one hour a day or something like that and having a good time and sharing with each other? Hell no, it's not. It's the other 23 out there where we're going to have a good life, kids. That's what alcoholics and others. I love flying airplanes. One of the amenities of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is let me learn to love what's going on out there, not in here. Anybody can like going in here. At that time, it is my understanding that no one in the world, and that's bigger than Wyoming, no one in the world had ever been returned to the cockpit of a major airline flying after having lost their license due to alcoholism. I have not got in the last month a current figure on this for you guys, but about a month ago I got a figure of 827 of us now have. At that time, no one in the world had. Let me ask you good drunk something. Isn't that just the kind of a challenge that a really good alcoholic likes? So I bombarded the airline. I do not tell you the name of the airline. Let me tell you why I don't. It has to do with what I'm doing. I've done the same thing I'm doing right now down at the Preston Group in Dallas, Dallas, Texas one night. And when I got through, an officer of this company had been sitting out there listening. 
And he came up beside the podium and he says, Rod, boy, he says, don't say American Airlines behind that podium. <laughs> so I don't say it anymore. But I do say it, and I say it nowadays thoroughly with their blessings, and I say it for a couple of reasons. One of them is simply this, y'all. I am so interminably proud of that outfit for being such a leader as they have been in setting up a program for people like me. And then encouraging me to be right here doing what I'm doing instead of out there dying. Let me tell you how true that is. One time, three or four or five years ago, I was asked to go do this thing out of state someplace, and I had a trip to fly. That's no big deal. All i got to do is call around, find another pilot, trade chips with him, go off and do my thing. That time, however, when I called around, I couldn't find anybody to trade chips with me. And I was just about called him and told him I couldn't come do that thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. When this great big old six-foot-eighty chief pilot of ours there in Dallas, Fort Worth, we got 7,400 pilots with American Airlines now, and 2,300 of them are at Dallas, Fort Worth, and this guy's the boss of them. And he had a lot of time to mess with just this one guy. But he heard what I was trying to do. And he called me up down to the house down there. And he says, Rod, boy, he says, you get your thing on out there, get your butt on out there and do your thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll come out of the office and fly your trip for you and we'll pay you for it. Now that's what American Airlines thinks about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I suspect that's what any company is going to think about Alcoholics Anonymous once they find out what, not what it's doing for us what we're doing for ourselves in here. Once they find out that people like me have not had to call in sick but two times since I started to come to meetings and not drinking. No, no. No, no. Since I started working the steps. I suspect out of that 7,400 pilots with American Airlines that I had the worst attendance record due to misuse of sick leave of any pilot in that group. I came to our and I was not quit drinking, listen to me, and my attendance record got worse. Hell, you took away my solution. We can and we have, in setting up a program with American Airlines, gone back and put a date on when I started working and reworking the 12-step program with Alcoholics Anonymous. I've called in sick twice since then. Once was from a damn near failure motorcycle wreck that had 24 big books in the back of the motorcycle when I had a wreck. And the other one was from sheer fatigue from coming back speaking at a conference just like this. I just haven't been sick much, you know, and they recognize it. But there's another reason I'll tell you the name of that airline. There's some words I can't take. I can't take the words you must. I can't take the word never. I can't take the word can't. And I can't take the word don't. And this son of a bitch came up to me and said, Don't say American Airlines behind that podium. <laughs> so I don't do it anymore. <laughs> it's the reason I think Bill Wilson started off the fifth chapter that was read just a few minutes ago so beautifully with the word rarely. Okay? What if he had said, Never have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly fought... Me and half of you folks would have got up and went right out here and don't say never to people like me. He says rarely. That's on page 58 that he read. Page 59, geez, y'all, I'm going to get carried away and I'm sorry about that. No, I'm not. I'm enjoying it. Page 59, he gets down to the 12 steps. He's going to write these things out. And he's written 74 times in the first 164 pages of the big book. He's used the word must. But he says, hey, old Rod's down here in Texas and Arkansas. He's in training for Alcoholics Anonymous even at three years old, probably. He said he can't take the words that must. He says, I believe he's going to suggest that he works these steps. How beautifully this book was written. How perfectly it was written for me. Okay? I got off my tail there. I don't apologize for that. I enjoyed the hell out of it. 
I got back with the airline, I convinced them to change my firing to a medical leave of absence. If I could get the federal government to reissue a license to fly. I think they thought they were safe. But being the con artist that some of us alcoholics are, I got the airline to let me use their medical department to convince the federal government to reissue. The end result of that was three years from the time I was grounded, I was back flying for the airline. Life could not have been better. Anyway, life could not have been better. We continued to live up there in Arkansas and run that business. I commuted to Dallas to fly my trips. Life could not have been more manageable. Jeez, don't forget that. Life could not have been more manageable. On April the... March. March the 8th of 1977. I brought a 727 trip back at the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And I had two or three hours. I was going to sit around and wait for a trip to fly back, just ride back to Little Rock to my home, my business and so forth. And Kathy touched this while ago. I, I, it's, it's redundancy, but I'm going to do it. I, I, while I sit around there waiting to catch that trip, I got a telephone call from Arkansas. And it was from a friend of mine that lived on the same cove I lived on the lake up there. And when he called, his name was Jim also. And Jim says, Rod, there's been an accident up here. And my dad had been so very ill for so many years. And said, see if y'all can identify with this, you step workers, however big few of you there are in here. Didn't mean that to be that mean, did it? Since the advent of my working my ninth step with my father. I ain't talking about apologies, sweetheart. Y'all ever been on a ninth step meeting and somebody in the what are we going to talk about tonight? And somebody says, oh, let's talk about the ninth step. And you got 75 people sitting around there. And every damn one of them talks about apologies. And you're not going to go down five people down here to the fifth guy's going to say, well, I just can't say I'm sorry. Hell, that's all I ever said. Well, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's my fault. God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So much so that my sponsor took the word out of my vocabulary. I'm sorry. The next step, don't say amends. Don't say apologies. It says amends. It says fix it. What's the difference? If I go up there and break one of those window panes up there and I tell the owner of this building that I'm sorry, that's an apology. If I go to the hardware store Monday morning and get a piece of glass and go replace it, that's amends. Amends means to mend, to fix. Since I did the ninth step, I fixed my past with my father. Oh, God, we got so close. I said, my God, Jim, is it my dad? He says, no, it's not your dad. He says, there's been a burglary at your house or something. He says, he says there's been a shooting. He says, your wife is dead. Doris is dead. Well, I'm not going to go into the feelings and emotions that we have. Almost everyone in here probably has lost someone close to them. But I'm going to tell you something. My mother passed away last month, and this same scene was reenacted. But let me tell you about my story thing back there where my wife's dead. In a short period of time... It took that airplane to get from Dallas-Fort Worth Airport about an hour to the Little Rock Adams Field. Word spread across the state of Arkansas to the extent that when I got off that airplane in Little Rock, it looked like the entire terminal building was absolutely, completely, totally packed full of my alcoholics and anonymous buddies from across the state of Arkansas. Give me that, you betcha. Give me that usual solid support that I'm so accustomed to now, right? As Kathy said a while ago, is that the greatest thing now that you people give me? No, hell no. It's not even a close second. What now is the deep thing that you guys have taught me to give you that support? Get back out of me and get into you that way. Most people want... We get some people behind the podium of alcohol synonymous that knock church occasionally, don't we? And I have been perceived as doing that myself. Please don't. Please don't. I do not knock church. I do not knock anything that works for anybody. But let me ask you something. Where in the society of the human race. Are we going to find the support and the love that we find in here? 
in Alcoholics Anonymous. It just doesn't happen. Those people didn't mouth this thing. They didn't leave me. They took me back to my mother's house. And they stayed with me, literally stayed with me, in bed, holding my hand, day and night, until after the funeral. And the funeral was over with. Most good people leave you and leave you alone again. They didn't. They took me back to my mother's house. I changed clothes, put on a pair of blue jeans. They took me right there to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in Hot Springs. The next morning, hell, I got up. I went to Dallas Fort Worth. I, threw another, I didn't miss a, two, in, a trip to the entire mess. Yeah. Another extremely interesting thing, y'all. The thought of taking a drink of alcohol had not even slightly crossed my mind. I had me a lot of Alcoholics Anonymous going at the time. I flew that three-day trip. I went back to Arkansas. Word had spread across the state up there this time. Rumors travel. I used to think it was just in Arkansas. Phil didn't Wyoming. Word had spread across the state of Arkansas this time that my next-door neighbor's wife, the woman that had found my wife dead, was also the person that had killed my wife. Further rumors had it that my next-door neighbor's wife and I were having an affair. And I don't take too long for rumors like that to get out of hand. They had her arrested for first-degree murder within two weeks. Now, this is funny now, but it damn sure wasn't funny then. I was the only person in the state of Arkansas taken up to that woman, which did not do a whole lot to quiet those rumors about that affair. Not smart either, was it? Her trial was set for June the 1st of that year. That was 1977. I came in off of another trip the day before her trial was to start, and I said on my mother's house, the telephone rang, and it was the police downtown. I've never heard of them doing it this way before. They said, how about coming downtown and giving us some information we're going to use in her trial starting tomorrow morning? And God, I've been sober a lot of years now. I'm not afraid of the cops or anything else now, right? So I jumped in the car, I run downtown, I parked across the police station, I got out of the car, two plainclothesmen came up behind me, twirled me around, threw me up against the car, put the handcuffs on me, and arrested me for capital felony murder. I thought first-degree murder was the roughest charge people had. I was very naive. I didn't know that the capital on the front end of that thing meant that they were asking for the death penalty. But they took me across the street up the stairs and they threw me in jail. Sober. <laughs> I, a lot of us folks in this room have been in jails drunk and it ain't good. But I want to tell you something. Don't do it sober. <laughs> I mean, it's a bitch. <laughs> I stayed in there two and a half days. We had to come up with a quarter of a million dollar bond to get out of that damn thing. And when I got out, I didn't go to my mama's house. I didn't change clothes. I didn't take a bath. I didn't do nothing. I went straight to my sponsor. And I said, Jim, I said, I haven't got a craving, a compulsive desire, obsession, of thought of taking a drink alcohol last night yet. But I said, my wife's dead. I'm unemployed, by the way, because as Kathy said a while ago, you can't fly off a B airline while you're on indictment for a felony. So pending the outcome of that trial, I'm unemployed again. And I said, I'm under indictment for murder. And I said, Arkansas has just got a damn bit too small for me. And if I can, I'm going to get the judge to release me from the jurisdiction of this court. Till my trial comes about, I'm going to move back to Texas and let those two guys run that business. And to make a long story exceedingly short, that's exactly what I did. And I'm going to tell you all a couple of three interesting things. You know, I don't believe this, but it's absolute total truth. I moved back to Texas in an apartment by myself, in an area where I knew no one. And that's tough on me. I'm a lousy loner. My wife was dead. I was unemployed. I was under indictment for murder. Now listen to it, y'all. And my life was going absolutely fantastic. Simply because I was involved right here in the 12-step working program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, is it any wonder, y'all, in my home group in Melbourne, Arkansas, that I'm going to clean this up? Kathy says, clean it up. I get a little peeved. That's clean. When some dodo butt comes through that door five times in a row and says, I just can't get out of my misery until so-and-so happens. 
Bo-tiki. As we say south of the border. <laughs> I don't give a damn what's going on in my life. The 12-step program of alcohol Islamists when worked and reworked on a very repetitive basis will allow me to ride just a scotch above it. My life was going absolutely fantastic. I did something else that summer. I started dating this precious redhead that y'all just got through hearing. I, and simply due to the fact, let me try to, I wish I had a better vocabulary than this, but I'd really like to put this across, y'all. The big book talks about it. Let me try it. Simply due to the fact that Kathy had just gotten out of a very rotten marriage. And simply due to the fact of all the crap I was going through with. Okay? Let's try it once more. Nobody heard that. Not because Kathy sings too loud in the choir. Not because I was a card-carrying virgin. Let's try it again. Simply due to the fact that she had just gotten out of a very miserable rotten marriage. And simply due to all the crap going on in my life. We've got together closer, quicker than we ever could any other way. Why are we as close as we are in alcoholics numbers? Because, sweetheart, we've been to hell together and we're on our way back together. It says, and I don't go through this, I promise. I love the big book. I love to do it. The big book says on page 68, page 83, and page 124. Let's try 124. Cling to the thought, Rod, that in God's hands your dark past is the greatest possession you've got. Let's try it once more. Simply due to the fact that Kathy had gone to hell and I had gone to jail, we got together quicker than we could have any other way. And just as soon as I saw that our relationship was becoming something other than a platonic relationship. Have you ever heard of an alcoholic having a platonic relationship? (laughs) We just don't do it well. (laughs) I pulled Kathy aside. And I says to her, and I mean this tonight 10,000 times more than I meant it that night. I said, Kathy, honey, I love you. And I do. I do. I said, I love you more than possible. I love you any other way than what we're going through right now. But I said, if I ever get out of this mess without going to jail for life or an electric chair or something like that, I'd love to marry you. But there's something you've got to understand. And we're not talking about for two months now. We're talking about from a number of years of sobriety. I says, I'm an alcoholic. But now, how everybody in the nation been from coast to coast knows Rod Costin's an alcoholic. But I said, I'm sober. And my sobriety is the most important thing on earth to me. And I said, if you choose to accept this proposition, now that was, it was a proposal. <laughs> the proposition had to work as a reason for <laughs> You're going to have to come in second in my sobriety. Do you understand that? And I don't want to get behind the podium about Carlos Anonymous without saying this. Kathy was then and is now the most understanding, supportive person I've ever known in my entire life. It makes me lucky, doesn't it? Because I know I have a lot of you people out there, particularly some people that I sponsor, whose spouses and family that I support them in that manner. Let me talk out and on for ten seconds. There is not one thing, one person, one anything on this earth that I admire as much as I admire a step-working black belt Al-Anon. I mean that with all of my life. Hang it in there, baby. <laughs> you know, we always talk about Al-Anons being controllers, Catholic being controllers. Us alcoholics don't do too bad at that either. You know that? Kathy's mother and dad only lived. I was trying to run her life there a little bit. They only lived about six miles from me. And look, man, we talk about love, we talk about marriage, we talk about all this good stuff. And she would not introduce me to her parents. And it just bugged the hell out of her. And as it did, I bugged the hell out of her. 
One night, Kathy Frost, and she's talking about that. I'm still offline. I'm out there cleaning the house and doing dishes and all that crap. I'm still offline. While she's out there, it, 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 it came to this little phlegmatic mind of mine, just what a ridiculous position I was putting her in. And if she did go to her mother and dad, she'd do something like this. She'd say, mother and dad, this is right. He's a guy I love very much, a guy I want to marry. Since he's half again my age, he's been married half a dozen times or so. He's unemployed. He's an alcoholic. And he's unindicted for murder. But other than that, he's a hell of a nice guy, right? I want to tell you all something about I may go over a few minutes. Just I'll get wound up, and I'm sorry. I want to tell you something about this woman sitting there next to me right now. It is my opinion that tonight I am married to, I mean this, y'all, the world's most beautiful, sexy, sweet, lovable, adore, adorable, brilliant woman on earth. Okay? I mean that. And you horny old boys can't have her. But I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. You too, write this down, Les. You too can go to bed tonight with the world's most beautiful, sexy, sweet, lovable, irresistible, adorable, brilliant woman on earth if you will treat her that way. Okay? If you will treat her that way. I told that one night down in Shreveport, Louisiana. <laughs> I told her one night down, I think it was in Shreveport, Louisiana, a number of years ago. And back in the back, back there was these two women back there just really got with it, man. And I turned around and I got through and I turned to the guy that chaired to me. And I said, boy, I really got a taste of a couple of those drunks back there. He said, man, there wasn't no drunks back there. There's a couple of Alanons wanting to be treated better. <laughs> you know, the big book talks, I don't know why I got on this, but I'm on it, so let's just go with it. <laughs> the big book talks more about sex than it does alcohol. You know that? It talks five pages about sex. It talks four pages about alcohol. Sex is a bigger problem to me than alcohol. Works. Let me talk to the men just a second. I don't know about how the women feel about sex, but I know about the men, I think. Do you guys remember? No, this isn't dirty. you guys remember, though, the first night that you did it? Hey, y'all, I'm not talking marriage. I'm talking it. No, really, seriously. You know, your face is so red and you got a pulse rate that's 250 and you're, you're just... Oh, this is the most... Wonderful thing that's ever happened to her. And now you sit over in a corner of the room and you look across the room at her. And you say, what happened to her? <laughs> I promise you something. If you'll treat her tonight like you treated her that night, it will be the same as it was that night. God, I can't wait to get back home. <laughs> <laughs> I took Kathy back off up to Arkansas and I introduced her to my little four foot ten inch Indian mother. I'm Indian in Scotch. I'm Indian by birth and Scotch by absorption. <laughs> my little mama died last month and God, we lost one of the greatest friends of alcoholics and almost ever had. She'd never taken a drink, but God, she loved what we did for my boy, you know? And mother took me aside and she says, Rodney Dale. <laughs> she calls me that because that's, that's what she named me when I was a baby. <laughs> She says, you finally found one that deserves you. <laughs> Only a mother, right? <laughs> My trial was set for January of the next year, and I'm going to tell you a couple things about it. Simply because it relates to alcohol stops. Well, I'm going to set for this. If any of you people are doing your fourth step, and you're having any trouble with it, maybe I can help you. Because I know me a little prosecuting attorney, a little district attorney up there in the state of Arkansas, that damn sure came up with some stuff out of my past that I forgot to put in my fourth step. He just might be able to help. The other... <laughs> 
The other thing is this, it's extremely serious, and it's extremely hard to put in words, but let me give it a shot. I was starting to have some trouble with my thinking. I bet you can understand that. I was starting to doubt God. I never did more to do that. God had been so good to me the last seven or eight years, you know. But my thing is going something like this. Look, God, here I've given you the best damn years of my life, boy. I've been sober for so many years now. I've been out of myself into others. I've been working and working those rotten steps. And what are you doing to me, God? My wife's dead. I'm unemployed. I'm unemployed. Just what the hell are you doing? And I started getting a lousy, lousy resentment against this situation. And some of you wise olds, don't tell me you ain't got them. We may be in Wyoming, but every damn group out here has got the smart asses. You know the ones. they got little thin blue lips. You know, and they come up to you with all the answers. You know the ones? Y'all came up to me. And you says, Rod, boy, if you've got a resentment against a situation, if you'll find any gratitude in that situation, where is that going to go away? And I thought, yeah. But let me tell you something, man. Hurt is a touchstone of all growth, isn't it? Because I was hurting, man. I was hurting bad and I needed something to do. And I said, okay, it ain't going to work. I can't. He said, well, it's not going to work by God, but I'll give it a shot. So I tried to find me some gratitude in this thing, and I could find no gratitude. I even did a little mini four-step, but I could find no gratitude for what was going on in my life. And then it happened. The little prosecutor turned up on finding out that I was like, oh, he decided he was going to make a moral issue of this thing. And he released it to Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 7, and the Arkansas Gazette and Democrat, old Rod Costin's an alcoholic. Well, my attorneys had no recourse but to bounce back with you bet your sweet booty bone he's an alcoholic, but he is a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, don't jump on me. I didn't break my anonymity. They did. Twice, y'all listen to me. Twice <laughs> during the course of that trial, two separate men called into my mother's house, strangers, and says, hey, if this boy can stay sober, going through what he's going through with, and do it in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, by God, we're going to give it a shot. Now, I don't know, I don't know whether what's that's what, I don't know whether they stayed sober, and I have no way of knowing that. I don't know whether that's my very good friend God had in mind, and I have no way of knowing that, but I know this. As soon as they busted this little bitty mind of mine, there's something good is coming to this ridiculous mess I had going. I couldn't keep a little gratitude from slipping in there. And as soon as it did, the resentment went away, and it never came back. In fact, Kathy can verify this. My mother and dad and I had a cotton-picking ball during my murder trial. Trial lasted eight days, jury was out 35 minutes, and obviously they came back, as Kathy said, with a verdict of not guilty. What had happened, if you're at all interested, was that the little prosecuting attorney had gone to that gal next door and had convinced her that he just might be able to put her away for life on that first-degree murder charge. But, and this is supposition on our part, my attorneys and me, probably having a weak case, he told her that if she wanted to, she could plead guilty to second-degree murder, naming either her husband, me, or a third party whose name they've yet come up with as having corresponded with her to do this thing, and she could plead guilty to say and get 12 years. She got 12 years. She got out in two, two years to the day. Getting back to flying came. Celebration of all those things came and still not a thought of taking a drink of alcohol. And it's July of 1978. Kathy and I were married and just like she said, Jesus, I wish we could inflict the people we sponsor with what we've got in the relationship. Would that be an ending to a story? That's not the ending. October 1979, Kathy, as she said, she put me in a hospital over in North Dallas with double pneumonia. And for ten days, four times a day, they brought me a little pill called Percodan. And November the 9th, 1979, she got me out of that hospital. We had not been in that apartment of ours five minutes. I know. 
I said, I'll figure out an errand for that sweet thing to run. And when I saw the taillights of her car leave that parking lot, I jumped in my pickup truck and I headed for the lick store. And I ended what was in eight and a half years of this precious, precious sobriety. Most of which had been damn good out of me and used trip work and sobriety. Complacency is the main thing. Don't let me blame the Perkinan pills, y'all. That means all I gotta do the rest of my life is just not take Perkinan pills. Okay? What had happened, and I'll make this brief, I promise you I will. What had happened was I had said to me, your wife is dead, you're unemployed, you're on indictment for murder, you never thought about taking a drink of alcohol, buddy, you've got it made. I don't need you anymore. I don't need to work the steps anymore. If I can go through that crap, I've got it made. And at a point when I had more money in the bank than I ever had in my life, when I had the, the love and loved the most beautiful, sweet woman in the world, and everything my life was going perfect, I drank again. The Percodan pills might have been a slight, slight, slight little catalyst, but I, God forgive me if I ever try to blame them for doing anything to me. Okay? Complacency is the worst enemy I've got on earth. I went to the liquor store, and for four months, <laughs> this is not funny, for four months I did me some white knuckle controlled drinking. Now, I don't know about y'all. I don't know whether y'all ever did that or not. But if you have, have not, take my word for it, don't do it. I believe it been far better for me, got right on with it, and got with the drinking, man, because I went instantly insane. March the 7th of 1980, Four months, like in two days later, I woke up with all of my insanity back. I wasn't drunk. Hell, I hadn't been drunk in four months. But every thought I had was around alcohol. When could I get out that day and get me some? What could I get to the smell of this? How much could I drink without getting drunk? Would I get into Montreal the next night in time to get to the liquor store? Should have put a bottle in my bag. Every thought I had was around alcohol. I didn't like what I was thinking. I knew what to do about what I was thinking. And I made a decision to do what turned out to be in the doing the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my entire life. There has never been a group of alcoholics in the world as big as this is right here, I'll bet you, without somebody being sitting back there thinking that you might just go out and take a drink, that you might not be an alcoholic. Please hear this. Please hear this. Please, please, please hear this. I made a decision to do what turned out to be the most difficult thing in the doing that I have ever done. I made a decision to come back to alcoholics now. Don't sound like much, does it? It's not for a bunch of door swingers, but you get an arrogant, egotistical, pride-infested nut like me who's not a door swinger. I work on commitments, baby. It's a big decision. It's a toughest. Next night was a Wednesday night. There was a meeting of the DFW group of Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. It was a group over there that I had been a charter member of. Big deal, right? And I went over there. Why I thought I had to go back there, I don't know. But I went over there. And when I walked in that place, y'all, and I'm not trying to hurt anybody these old coots feelings. When I walked in that place, I looked in that room. Now we say there's no there's no seniority in our cost numbers, right? If there's no seniority in our cost numbers, why do we spend so much of our damn time bragging on our sobriety dates? Okay? I walked up there and I looked in that room and I says to myself, I look real quick. If I hadn't drank that scotch whiskey, I would have been the most senior person in that room. And I turned around to walk away. And I would have walked away and died except for one thing. The guy chairing the meeting saw me. <laughs> and he came out and he grabbed me by the shoulder and he pulled me back in. He says, is there anybody here who wants a desire chip? Jesus. And I very ignominiously, weak knee, throwing pride out the window and admitting defeat, went down there and I got that damn desire chip. 
It's the toughest thing I've ever done in my entire life. It's the reason I'm going to tell you something. I'll never be back. I'll never be back. It isn't that you people wouldn't take me. I know you would. But I'll never have the guts to come back to you again. In a business like Kathy and I are in, we fly people around 550 so miles an hour. But news and rumors travels kind of slow. And it took two months before the news, rumors, or fact, as it were, got back to the upper echelon of deer line that old Rod had been drinking again. And when he got back to him, man, they called, medical director called me in. And when he called me in, hell, I knew I'd had it. Because that agreement I had with the federal government back in the early 1970s said, baby cakes, you ain't drinking no more, that's slop ever. And I had drank again, they knew I had drank again, and the federal government knew I had drank again. That's another story within itself right there. But this time there's something to do about it, right? There was a program set up for people like me, right? Now, it was going to be a bitch. It was going to take months and months and months of dealing with the red tape of the federal bureaucracy. But the worst part about it was, y'all, I mean this law of my life, the worst part about this thing, sober or not, and I've been sober two months. I've been back to two or three meetings a day for two months. Back thoroughly into step working for two months. Sober or not, if I was going to ever get back to flying, I was going to have to go into an alcoholic recovery unit, and I did not want to do that. People that know me very well know I have a rough time staying away from super wife 28 minutes, let alone 28 days. But if I was going to get back to flying, I was going to have to do it. I still have a rough time talking about that. So I went up to Denton, Texas. And I introduced Jitter joint up there with the name Westgate with the worst attitude a body's ever gone into a place like this. Like I said, I went in there sober. And it is my opinion that if a person's got to go into a place like that, the son bitch ought to go in there drunk. <laughs> then I set up for you sober. I had been up there three minutes till I ran across me this counselor up there by the name of John L. Now, John Hill was a guy that I'd met years before in a meeting, and I had not liked him. This time, whenever, when I took, I made him, I took me those little spot check inventories they talk about in the 10th chapter, the 12 and 12, and I said to myself, Rod, boy, you've never really hated anybody in your entire life. John L. filled in that square for me, you see. I'm here to tell you tonight I no longer hate John L. He's no longer there, but before he left there, we were working very closely in the program that I call us now. I had nothing but three or four days, something else happened. A guy on the outside, let me tell you what it was. The guy that had chaired the meeting when I went back and got the desire chair said something about me that got back to me in the jitter joint that was at best a modicum short of rigorous honesty. And my old sponsor, old wine old Joe down at Tyler, Texas, Joe would say he told an interminable inexactitude. Master lied about this what I'm trying to you. Okay? Now looking back on it from a little distance, a little sober distance, it was a rather a rather innocuous remark, isn't that very little? But I was up there looking for somebody to get mad at, somebody to resent. And I developed me a resentment against this guy like you wouldn't believe. And you know what you wise those did, don't you? The little thin lipped ones of you, you know? You came up to me and you said if you resent somebody, pray for it. I thought, but I'm hurting again. I'm hurting again. I need to follow directions again. So I prayed for him. I prayed for him, and I prayed for him, and I prayed for him, but he didn't die, you know? <laughs> I kept praying for him and praying for him and praying for him. He still didn't die. I'll tell you something else. The resentment didn't go away either. And I like to have never got around alcoholics and almost long enough to find out the first 164 pages, the textbook part of my big book, never says one word about praying for him. This is a program of action. 
It says do something for him. It's on page 67 if you don't believe it. I did. The resentment went away. It never came back. I finally got out of the place. I started trying to figure out what happened to me. And you know what I did? After eight and a half years of reading this book, what the hell happened to me? And you know what I did? I let the little perk of the pills take the blame for the whole thing. But let me tell you what I did. I did the most important thing that I've ever done in my entire life. For the first time in my life, I did what you people told me to do. Not what they told me to do up there at the jitter joint. What you people are now calling I started working the steps. Now, I haven't got time to go through the steps like I'd like to tonight. I really haven't. But the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, as I understand the program, what did he read a while ago, the last sentence before enumerating the 12 steps? He says, these are the steps we took which are suggested as a what? Program of recovery. Hell, it's the only program I've got. It's the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Going to meet and reading the big book, turning it over to God and not drinking. It's not the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's called church. Let me tell you something. Kathy just hates me to say this. I'm going to say it in here. Going to meetings, reading the big book, and not drinking relieves my alcoholism just exactly like a 16-year-old boy going to church, reading the Bible, and leaving the little girls alone relieves his sexual desires. I'm serious. The portal of Alcoholics Anonymous is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and them works on a very repetitive basis. Okay? And I did that. I did that, and I am doing that. I'm on my 13th, 4th step right now, and I'm behind. I should be on my 16th. And there's a guy sitting back there that I sponsor that's going to start another one right now, or he's going to get another sponsor. Okay? It's in the steps, y'all. The whole program is in the steps. Let me advance this whole thing just a little further, and I'll start getting down from here. Since I'm not going to run the steps, let's do go on down to step 12 and get into where the thing is culminated, okay? What does step 12 say? Having had a spiritual waiting as a result, as the result, of attending meetings and not drinking. Come on, y'all. How many of us treat it that way? Having had a spiritual waiting as the result of working these steps. What steps? The first 11 steps. It's the only spiritual waiting. Somebody said, well, Jesus, I had a spiritual waiting as a result. Yes, there's something else, K-Baby Cakes. The spiritual waiting now causes numbers as a result of working the first 11 steps. Or the book's a liar. Says we tried to carry the message to our cause. Pass it on. Let's talk. Pass it on for just a minute. No big deal in passing it on either, is it? Make one twelve-step call, and you're addicted. You're addicted for the rest of your life. Les and I were talking today about promises. We got off on promises. Everybody's familiar with the twelve promises. Let's don't touch them. We're so familiar with them. Let's go to sixteen more that's in this book. You know, there's supposedly 147 promises in the first 164 pages of the big book, right? Let's talk about only 60. There's only 60 to that 147 to talk to about not drinking. The other 140 is about what I was looking for in the bottom of the bottles of scotch. But where are those 16, y'all? After the fifth step, there's one very vague promise about not drinking. It says the feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. Now let's go to those 12 promises that we won't mess with. You remember where they are? There at the bottom of page 83 and the top of page 84. But let's go further. Let's go to the bottom of page 84 and the top of page 85. There's a paragraph there, isn't there? It's got 13 promises about not drinking. That's a total of 14. Now then, where are we going to find the 15th and 16th promise about not drinking? Let's go to the first paragraph of the chapter 7, wherein it talks about working with others. Back there in the way beginning of the book, it says, all of us work with others, not a chosen few. But what does that first paragraph of chapter 7 say? You remember that? 
It says practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity against drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. That's the 15th. The 16th says, this works when all other activities fail. Now, what are we in here for, y'all? We talk about saying a prayer in the morning, asking God to help us not drink that day. I'm sorry, that's not in Alcoholics Anonymous. We talk about thanking that night. I'm sorry, that's not in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's only about seven prayers in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and all seven of them are asking God to help me get rid of me. Let's take the very first page of the first forward to the first edition to show others action. Me get out of me and into you. To show others how we have recovered. No, it doesn't, does it? To show others precisely how we have recovered. You see, the reason this book was written. That's the first page of the first edition's prayer. Let's go to page 164. There's a prayer there. We ask each morning in our morning meditation for what we can do for the man who still suffers. Get rid of Rod and get into y'all. That's 12 step. There's one more part of the 12 step, y'all. It says, and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. We don't learn much about that, do we? Can I cheat on Kathy? Seriously, can I cheat on Kathy in the program God calls us If I cheat on, you remember what Dr. Silkworth said? He says, the reason I drink is because I become restless, irritable, and discontented, unless I can get experience a sense of ease and comfort that comes from taking a few drinks. If I cheat on Kathy, I'm afraid Kathy's going to catch me. I become restless, irritable, and discontented. I'm afraid the husband of the gal's going to catch me. I become restless. I'm afraid I'm going to catch something. <laughs> And there's one other thing. I sponsor lots of folks. And I've never listened to a fifth step yet where the person was not just eaten up with conscience. And when I do something that I know is wrong, I become restless. I become irritable. I become discontented. Unless I can even experience a sense of ease and comfort that comes from taking a few. No, I can't cheat on Kathy. And we'll go to sleep tonight real well. I just can't do it. I want to, in carrying this pass it on message to Alcoholics Anonymous, y'all, I want to adhere to a little slogan that we see so much on our printed literature that says, when anyone anywhere reaches out for help. I want the hand of Alcoholics Anonymous, not, not the hand of Rod Coston, nor the opinions, the cliches, nor the metaphors of Rod Coston, but the accurate hand of Alcoholics Anonymous to be there. And for that I'm responsible. Let me tell you two fast things. I'll say. One of them is this. What I was asked to tell, and I'll tell that second. May the 21st of last year, just over a year ago, <clears throat> American Airlines inaugurated a brand spanking new 747 trip from Dallas-Fort Worth nonstop to Tokyo, Japan. Now, you can look at me and see that I've been somewhere a long time. I've been with American Airlines this month, 18th of this, what is that? 19th? Today's 18th. 35 years ago today, I went for Murray Dillon. <laughs> Never thought of it. <laughs> Thank you. We've got 7,400 pilots or something like that, and I'm number five. <laughs> We've been there a long time. And by virtue of that seniority, I was awarded the inaugural trip from Tokyo back to Dallas. The guy senior to me got the one going over, and I got the one coming back. And right behind that award was the information. This is touching, y'all. I'm going to try to do it without tears that our vice president of flight was going to displace the captain off that trip, and he was going to fly the honors trip back from Tokyo to Dallas. Okay? God, I'm buddy of this old guy. I'm senior to him. He's one of our pilots, just made vice president. So I called him up, and I said, Al, I hear you're going to displace me off that inaugural trip. He says, yes. That's exactly what I was going to do. 
until I pulled it up on the computer to see who the captain was on that trip, and he says, Rod, we want you to represent American Airlines on that trip. Now, that's touching, but let me tell you something more touching. Al, the vice president, used to be the chief pilot that fired me for alcoholism. If you want to tell somebody alcoholics anonymous doesn't work when you work the program, Dodo, tell it to somebody else. It works in every phase of my life when I work it. The other thing is this. Let me tell you about my fear. Somebody asked me to do this. Not too long ago, I would have told you I wasn't afraid of anything. And I would have been lying to you. Back up there at Dardanelle, Arkansas, what I was doing up there was dusting the cotton. Just a bunch of kids, you know. And on Sunday, they wouldn't let us work there in the middle of the Bible Belt, so we put on an air show. And they gave me and this other boy that gave us a hundred dollars every Sunday. I had a lot of money back in those days to make the parachute jump. And every damn Sunday we'd bet with each other. I bet you I'd wait longer than you can to pull a rip. Yeah, we weren't afraid of anything. Didn't care less. But I'm afraid, aren't I? I've got plenty of fear. I'm afraid of alcohol. But more than being afraid of alcohol, I'm afraid of the insidiousness of letting down on my program. God don't let that happen to me again. My fear now has to do with something else, though. You know, I think the guy that invented that little PA system, the little microphone that they put on, whereby the, the pilot can talk to his passengers, I think that guy had it in for me. This little nemesis of mine first started up there when I first started flying captain back in the early 1960s. And I very confidently picked up this microphone to talk to my passengers. And I says, ladies and gentlemen, we're pissing over Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth, by the way. That was later chronicled in a book that was written in 1966. I have said every dumb thing that can be said over one of those things. So much so that nowadays I let the co-pilot do the biggest part of it. One time we was taxing out up in St. Louis, Southern Island. There were thunderstorms and lightning and hail. You would, the ducks were walking by the damn airplane, you know. And we're getting ready to go airplane ride, you know. And I decided it's time to calm all the folks, be the hero, you know, and calm all the folks down in the back. And what I do is I hum a little bit and get my voice down that deep, John Wayne, sexy, low, you know. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> anyhow, I finished that little message. I hung up the microphone and I said to my co-pilot and engineer as loud as I could, okay, boys, let's see if we can get this big bastard off the ground. Well... I didn't know it till the stories came busting through the door, but the mic button had stuck. <laughs> and I broadcast that to all the folks, too. But my fear now has to do with this, y'all. You know, I go to an awful lot of Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And every one of them at one time or another, I'll say my name is Rod Costin. I'm an alcoholic. Someday I'm going to get on that airplane. <laughs> And somebody said the other day, and at least 20% of them are going to come back and say, Hi, Ron! <laughs> Thank you so very much. <laughs>